Hello, my name is Justin McClure, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And man, are we tired, because that Jackie Chan episode just took it out of us, didn't it, Will? It was the moment when pain becomes pleasure, though. You know? <laughs> like, it, it took a lot out of me, but I enjoyed every second of it. I like to point out and that... And also, I, I am a masochist. I could have gone on for three hours. I had enough notes, but... We could do ten weeks of... Patreon episodes exploring like microscopic aspects of his career. I was like, we didn't even talk about the fact that when Miramax put out all his films, he took a photo in a black shirt and it appeared on every cover. <laughs> we didn't talk about Fearless Hyena 2. <laughs> I mean, think of all the things. But we have to do something that everybody does and we're doing it last. And that's our top 10 list of the year. Our lists have had time to marinate. Yes. Unlike some of those other lists. Yeah, that came out in December, like we said, we talked about. That's Crazy. ridiculous, putting a list out in December. Come on. <laughs> so we're just going to go through our top 10 list. We'll each be sharing it. Um, and then, you know. Trying to justify our choices. Yeah. And uh, thinking about in a few years when we look back and go, what? what is that movie? I don't even remember that. How did that make my top 10 list? First of all, uh, just what did you think of the year in cinema 2017? It was fine. Um, I had a little harder time filling out the list than I normally do. But I look at my old list and I'm like, what Like, what am I thinking when I put this on there? There are always a couple on the old lists where, I mean, there's nothing, well, I shouldn't say there's nothing. Like, th- there are choices that you live to regret. But for, but for the most part, it's <laughs> That those... top 10 that was just Woody Allen that year? <laughs> like, woof! <laughs> my, uh, it, yeah, every single James Toback movie <laughs> ranked at number one. Is Crisis in Six Scenes a movie? That's the question we'll be discussing <laughs> this episode. What happens a lot is that at the end of the year, I'll watch a bunch of movies that, like, I missed, and they'll yeah. just find their way on my lists, and then... and. It didn't have a chance to, like like you said, marinate. But like, I don't know if I'm seeing fewer movies or I'm getting older or I'm becoming more of a curmudgeon in my old age because, like, 2017, I was less excited than I normally am. I feel like the median level of movie was lower than it normally is. I would is. say that you probably bought more Blu-rays than you ever have in 2017. I mean, you know, I don't want to I don't want to brag, but I have a job that makes me <laughs> but I mean a good middle-class income. <laughs> you watched a lot of older films. That's true. And so you weren't tempted to go see whatever was new just because it's out there. There are a number of Oscar contenders that I have not seen. You haven't seen The Post yet? Just came out on Friday. I have seen The Post, <laughs> but I have not seen three billboards <laughs> mm. in whatever the place is. Yeah. Uh, is there any other ones that you missed? I'm trying uh, to think. The Churchill movie I haven't seen. Yeah, but that wouldn't have made your list. Uh, like... the, I haven't seen The Shape of Water, but but this is an example of movies that I haven't been going to see. That I And that in previous seen... years you would have gone and seen yeah. because everybody else is. I actually saw a lot of the films this year at TIFF that were like the big festival releases. Also, it was a rough year and I feel like just the the badness of the year hung over everything, Mm -hmm. you know. So my list begins with two documentaries. At number 10, Human Flow by Ai Weiwei, Mm. which is the great artist's attempt to cover the full scope of the global refugee crisis. He visits everywhere where there are refugees, familiar places like Syria and Turkey and Iraq, but also places you might not expect, like Africa or an undercovered country like Malaysia or the Gaza Strip or even the U.S.-Mexican border. There are more dynamic movies I could have chosen for the number 10 slot. Does Jackie Chan appear in this film? (laughs) Uh, No, I think uh, Jackie Chan and Ai Weiwei probably don't see eye-to-eye on certain things. It's 140 minutes and you definitely feel it because refugee camps tend to feel a bit the same um, all over the world. But I think there's a lot to be said for what this movie does. It immerses us in 
in this world and it broadens our understanding of who the refugees are what they go through, what their conditions are. And I was also very moved by the unspoken subtext of the film, which is that Ai Weiwei, he's somebody who's also threatened by his own country. Mm -hmm. He's a dissident. um, And yet he's able to travel relatively freely throughout the world because of the force of his celebrity. And it's something that he doesn't underline in the movie, but it's something that becomes very clear. And also I would just say, as a visual artist, he makes some interesting use of different kind of new forms of image making. Uh, there's there's a lot of drone photography and there's a lot of cell phone video and you know normally these aren't um, modes of image making that are particularly compelling to me but it's interesting to see him show you the different ways they can be used well that was very concise will and i have not seen this film uh my number 10 will have to be i tanya did you get a chance to see this one not yet Uh, It's a movie that I saw at TIFF, and at the time I had not heard anything about it. It just kind of came out. It stars uh, Margot Robbie, and she plays Tanya Harding, a uh, figure in pop culture that I only knew from the Weird Al song, where he does a parody (laughs) version of what happened to her. And I wasn't conscious enough to understand what was happening when it was in the news and stuff like that. So I have no association to it. And what this movie is, is a fascinating mix of, like, Scorsese light so all the like camera tricks and the use of the pop music but the tonal kind of mishmash is weird to watch because on one hand these like pop hits are trying to make you laugh and the way that it's stylistically shot like characters keep breaking the fourth wall and stuff like that it makes you think that it's like a fun thing but it's not fun and the character of Tanya the way that it's presented in the film like you think that you're supposed to be incredibly sympathetic to her and that she's supposed to be an anti-hero but at the same time like she's a difficult person that does difficult things like it's not a film that like i've heard a lot of people talk about it in the context of forgiving her and like saying like oh free tanya you know etc etc it's using all these different techniques from the director of mr woodcock (laughs) (laughs) To tell a story that the medium kind of muddles the story, but in a good way, in that you're not exactly sure how you're supposed to feel watching it. And yet, oddly enough, Tanya Harding seems to have become something of a folk hero in the last two years. Yeah, well, what can happen is you could watch a movie like that, and she's abused uh, physically and mentally, and that you want to see somebody like that succeed. But it, like, the film never tries to shy away from the fact that you know, she was difficult as well because it is a story of someone from like, you know, the lower class trying to participate in something that's, you know, upper class and the disparity that's there. And it's also a story of someone being in an abusive relationship and like the way that the violence is portrayed in this film is sometimes in that poppy comic book way, but it never kind of shies away from how brutal it is and how sudden it is. Like you could read it as a kind of joke, but the film is always trying to remind you like, no, like this is real. Like this is actually happening. And that's what I find interesting about it. And that's why it's kind of sat with me a long time. And Margot Robbie's performance in it, in it is great. My number nine is Risk uh, by Laura Poitras, her follow-up to Citizen Four, which originally set out to do for Julian Assange what Citizen Four did for Edward Snowden. This is a movie that's risen in my estimation since I saw it seven or eight months ago. Um, I think like a lot of people who saw it, I was, I was, my perception of it was clouded by the fact that there was an original version that showed at Cannes that was much more complimentary to Assange. 
and that uh, also featured a lot more of this guy Joseph Applebaum, an independent journalist who Poitras had had an affair with and who was outed as a sexual predator. So, so the new, the current definitive version of the film addresses that, and it offers a more um, ambiguous portrait of Assange. It's it's a movie that I think benefits from the fact that it's no longer a hagiography of Assange. We see him act quite deplorably, um, and we also get a sense of him as just this very impenetrable, you know, perhaps even sociopathic presence. The movie has some very important implications. It's a movie that says, you know, isn't it a shame that issues this important rest in the hands of a man this terrible? This is getting away from movie talk, but isn't that what all the important, you know, decisions rest in? Usually men that are terrible people. I, you know, it's and in this one, more so than most. Because, like, <laughs> Citizen Four, you know, Edward Snowden comes across as a pretty good guy. Mm-hmm. And that's not the case here. Oh, and also I would just say, like, it's incredible some of the footage that Laura Poitras was able to capture. I mean, we see him getting in disguise and making an escape to the Ecuadorian embassy. Do you think the first version will ever be released? I hope it is. Because that would be a fascinating comparison like between both of them and how someone's opinion of the subject that they're documenting can change. Yeah. So my number nine uh, is The Last Jedi. Yeah, that's right. It made it on my top 10. So we talked about the film a lot on a bonus episode we did, so I'm not going to get back into that. But the fact that the film has created so much discourse and a lot of it real discourse, not just fans yelling at each other, that uh, it's a film that, uh, while it's popcorn entertainment, which is awesome, I think that it's one that I will be returning to because it is a summation and a deconstruction of Star Wars, which is something that was important to me when I was a teenager. But there's still an emotional connection there. I'm on the record as having been pleasantly surprised by The Last Jedi. But um, you could not put it on your top 10 list. No, would it, would be be against my, it would be against my brand. <laughs> yeah. um, but are you excited for Solo, a Star Wars story? Absolutely not. Uh, as <laughs> but, but it's by Ron Howard. It, I know, we did a whole episode on him where I watched 12 of his movies desperately trying to find something good in there, something in the passionate man that I've heard in documentaries and commentaries that would be interesting, well, and I did not succeed. Perhaps you should take his master class. I should. You know what? Yeah, all right. No Scorsese. It's all going to be about Ron Howard. You know, it is interesting, though, to see like how this Star Wars franchise is evolving now that it's... Now that there's a movie every year and and it's starting to become no longer the huge event it used to be, like the brand is starting to get watered. Well, down. Han Solo is coming out in May. There has been no teaser, no trailer. I don't believe yet. it's coming out in May. Because it is, and uh, they're, someone they're that I know reshoots. has talked to someone at Lucasfilms, and they're dead set on that date. All right, because we'll they have a big film coming out Christmas. So they don't want them competing with each other. So my number eight is Short Stay by Ted Fent. And I'm cheating a bit here because I think it like... Came out in 2016? It came out at the end of 2016, but it played theatrically here in Toronto in 2017. And also, you know, why don't I just highlight a movie that you've never heard of? You know, Finally, a movie that I've seen. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So this is an hour-long movie, an extremely micro-budget, like really no-budget comedy about this youngish loser you know post-collegiate who lives with his mom in new jersey and gets a job from another friend who's also a loser giving walking tours in downtown philadelphia 
There's not much more to the plot. It's so funny, though. It's, it's kind of a, a comedy of manners of sorts. A very small, very precise comedy about awkwardness and loneliness and inertia and just being uncomfortable in your own skin but not knowing what to do about it. There's a moment uh, while we were watching in the theater that Will leaned over to me and went, man, I've been there. That made me laugh so hard. <laughs> and I will never forget that. I mean, that could be like 20 moments in the movie. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And also just like the general... The, the general plot of the movie is also sort of me. Man, I wish I had more movies like that because that's a good one to like underline and let people know that they should go see this. Yeah. Because otherwise they're not going to. Like, I don't even know. It's probably available in some format at this point. I hope so. Even though that we saw it on 35mm, a copy of the director kind of brought himself to the theater. Ted Fent, who I believe is a projectionist in New York... He wrote a, a book about Strobe Hulet. That's right. <laughs> yes. All right. So my number eight is Call Me By Your Name. Uh, Haven't seen it yet. <laughs> Everyone. I will. I will. Uh, I want to see this one. <laughs> this is a film that is very exciting. It's very intimate. The thing about my list is that the disappointing thing is that there's no films that I can really dig in because I know that nobody has seen. Mm-hmm. And I feel that I can't vocalize a thought that people haven't heard because we're coming late on the uh on the top 10 list so all the movies on my list are ones that have appeared in other places and that's the difficult thing about making these lists i'd rather have a top 10 list of films that like you haven't seen this year i mean we could just like right now break our rules and start (laughs) putting in like festival movies we saw that didn't didn't come out yet well we talked about the fact that like bodied would be really high on body would probably be number two on my list if if i could put it on and it's not on there or a movie I saw High Fantasy at TIFF really stayed with me, a really micro-budget film about body swapping that was made in South Africa, but I also don't think that one is available yet. Yeah, looking at IMDb, it has 26, you know, ratings, which means it hasn't been released anywhere, which is not fair because... Top 10 lists at a certain point are just recommendation machines. And if the films are not out or cannot be seen, like, you don't look at old top 10 lists that much, do you? I mean, no. Number seven, here's one you've seen. Mm. Uh, a little movie called Get Out by Jordan Peele. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I actually almost didn't put this on the list. I think because I was starting to take the movie for granted a little bit. I yeah. mean, it's been so talked about. And it's also a movie that when you sit and think about it, could be viewed as just an episode of The Twilight Zone or something like a minor horror film. But I think that what makes it special is how precise it is. You forget what it was like, you know, in February when it was a movie that wasn't particularly heralded in the weeks before it came up. Like, it was a Bloomhouse horror movie. Mm -hmm. And it's one of those rare cases of, like, an exploitation movie where the director was actually able to use, you know, the format to smuggle in his own ideas. Mm -hmm. Um, But, like... There's a reason it caught the zeitgeist. Those white and black interactions that the movie depicts are like piercingly true. Mm-hmm. And the movie's very funny and it's very exciting. Uh, something I just want to bring up though. This movie got a 99% on Rotten Tomatoes, which seems a little weird to me because this is a movie that is ostensibly like a hand grenade right into like American race relations in the Trump era. And you would think that something like that would be more controversial. Yeah, it's a little bit odd. But I think that a lot of the critics laughed along with the movie Mm -hmm. and got involved in it. And they went, oh, well, that's not me. Like, I'm not that white guy. Like, that's another reason why this movie almost didn't make the list. Because I was starting to get a little suspicious of how universally praised it was. Is there some massive conspiracy going on? Uh, Well, no, but I mean, like... What would it add to put this on your top 10 list? Look, it's on the list. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So so here it is. I was just getting a little suspicious about how much, like, 
how universally praised it was. Is there, do you feel when something is universally praised like that, you are more inclined to not like it? To be honest, a lot of movies that are universally praised are universally praised for a reason. Mm. But that said, I I do have a, a certain suspicion of some of them. Like a lot of them are like, you know, if if the entire kind of critical establishment is behind something, what is it saying? Is it pandering in some way? Mm. I don't know. Yeah, I don't see that at all. Like that never really crosses my mind. And I think that comes from a place of like a long time ago, I was like, you know, if everybody likes it, maybe I'll like it too. And I can go <laughs> see it. Like... Yeah. there's an idea of like intellectual superiority, which comes into like these top 10 lists. That is a weird thing that I struggle with a lot. Like, do you do things to look smarter or like by liking something you'll look dumb? Listen, of course I want to look smart, but like, (laughs) you know, so many of the movies that I love Mm -hmm. and that are, are what I consider favorites would probably get 75% on Rotten Tomatoes. Or even lower than that. Or even lower than that. I, I hate, sorry to bring up, you know, Rotten Tomatoes, but like, my favorite movie of the decade so far, I would say, is The Wolf of Wall Street. Mm. And that's a movie that's probably hovering around 75 right now because it's a movie that like has the capacity to upset people. Yeah, there needs to be an element of challenge in yeah, it yeah. that can be overcome by the smart viewer. Like me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So so what's your number seven? My number seven is Lady Bird, Greta Gerwig's um, debut. Speaking of films that are critically loved yeah. across the board, I think it has something like 99% on Rotten Tomatoes sure. or something like well, that. Well, I'm not going to be the one to <laughs> knock it down to 98. Don't Did worry. you see it? Yeah, I liked it. Hey, you liked it? Okay. Yeah. Uh, it's a movie that spoke a lot to me, especially uh, the relationship between um, the titular character and the mother. Uh, My mom struggled like that a lot when I was a kid. She worked as a nurse, uh, very similar to what Lady Bird's mom does. And I was kind of a troublesome teen as well, and we weren't very well off. So there was a lot echoed there with me. And I love movies that deal with difficult characters, but finds a way to present them that they can be sympathetic as well. Yeah, I like that the mother and the daughter in the movie like they can both learn from each other. Mm-hmm. Like they're they're not in neither one is a good guy or a bad guy. And it's also a movie where like watching separate scenes you would realize you would think that the mother and daughter hate each other, but it's just the relationship that they have. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right, so what's your number whatever it is at this uh, point? I think we're at number 6 right now. Yeah. Uh, according to my notes here. <laughs> Uh, another uh, highly praised movie, uh, The Florida Project by Sean Baker. Here, mm-hmm. we are, here we are getting into that territory of yeah. movies that are on everyone's list. I know, it's on my list as well, so uh, I'm, I'm going to be able to just skip my like probably top three. <laughs> uh, so this is a, you know about an Orlando mo- motel uh, that's more or less a homeless shelter. I think this movie is very effective at making you empathize with all the characters, no matter how irresponsible their choices may seem, because, you know, when you're at a, when you get to a stage like this, you didn't get here in a vacuum. There were yeah. a lot of factors influencing the fact that you got here. I think his, Sean Baker's decision to tell so much of the story from the children's point of view gives the movie its own strange rhythm and pace, and it keeps the movie from becoming cloying, as so many movies about children are. And it's a movie that knows what it's like to be a kid. It's not sentimental. Um, I would also say that uh, Sandy Kane, the naked cowgirl, uh, who any habitue of Times Square will be familiar with, has a memorable supporting role. Uh, I interviewed uh, Sandy Kane for my uh, my master's project at Columbia. What was your master's project on? I, I wrote about the naked cowboy. 
And at the time, the Naked Cowboy was suing uh, Sandy Kane for ripping off his act. So I was thrilled to see Sandy Kane in this movie. Uh, this is a movie that I actually saw at TIFF, and I saw it in IMAX mm. because what happens is they play it in a multiplex, and some of the movies have to go on the IMAX screen, which was kind of fascinating because it was this very intimate story blown up to ridiculous proportion even though that the film was shot on 35 millimeter which is an interesting choice because it does deal with kids principally and i was reading an interview with sean baker recently in cinemascope and he said that there's very little improv in the film because when you shoot on 35 you're forced to have to control what's going on so while he did do lots of long takes and the kids do feel very immediate there's this level of control that is very appealing to me as well, especially in the way that the film is constructed, that where it has that idea of feeling very free form and just stuff is happening. But if you think about it again, like almost every piece kind of slots into itself. And it's a film that like Tangerine or basically every movie that Sean Baker has made, except for his first one, which was a Kevin Smith homage. Oh my God. Yes. <laughs> I think it was called Four Letter Word and he's very embarrassed by it. I have to check that out. Is that... <laughs> It dangles on that level of exploitation of the subjects that it's dealing with, Mm -hmm. but balances itself so effectively that it's something to behold, even though that even Sean Baker said himself, like, I don't know how these films will look five to ten years from now and if they will look very wrong-headed in the way that I approached it. I definitely wondered that when I watched Tangerine. I Mm. liked Tangerine, but I wondered if it would seem dated in a while. And I mean, I don't know, with this movie... Yeah, I was very conscious watching it. Is this condescending? Is this exploiting people? But I mean, I, I what I did know was that I was empathetic towards everyone in the movie. And that's, you know, the tricky thing is that that empathy is the most important thing when it comes to a story like this, especially that mm-hmm. that's the journey that the movie kind of takes and the way that it does it, I find like really interesting. Also remarkable how well Willem Dafoe fits into this tapestry of characters. I mean, you know, some of these characters, some of these actors sean baker found on instagram Mm -hmm. you know sandy kane of course uh is a new york character uh the kids i guess are amateurs and willem dafoe works as this you know benevolent uh guardian figure i think that his role is kind of perfectly suited for him he does have that rough hewn quality about him but at the same time he is the authority figure and for him to be the only hollywood star in the Mm -hmm. picture is something that kind of makes it work And at the same time, Sean Baker has said that William Dafoe is in the movie because they needed funding. (laughs) And that was one of the only reasons that they could get it. So my number six is a film that will be on almost no one's top ten list. And that's South Korea's The Villainous. Now, I thought about this a long time uh, when I saw the film on my own. I didn't even see it in an audience. And that it's like this all-out action picture directed by a guy who made a documentary on Korean stuntmen a few years ago. So it's right in my wheelhouse. But at the same time, the film stops 45 minutes in to have an hour of melodrama before it jumps into the last 30-minute action scene. And something that I found has become a kind of obsession with me these days is the shifting of tones in film. Uh, When you talk to creators or even critics, they talk about the control of tone is something that's very important in cinema, is that controlling the tone will keep somebody engaged in what's going on. But... 
I love it when tones just go off the rails, and I find something very endearing about that, whether it's done on purpose or not, and I think the villainous is very much on purpose. And at the same time, it's an action film that features, like, amazing action. So that's why it's on my list. I gotta be honest, I had trouble with this movie when I saw it, that that shifting of tones. Mm -hmm. Um, And a lot of people have said the same thing. You know, I, I have to have problems when people go like, oh, it's, you know, ripping off Kill Bill. It's like, yeah, okay, that's the one film you know that's like a martial arts picture that stars a woman. Yeah. And uh, but other than that, like, yeah, and it's also like a genre stew. Uh, I should also say years. I was having a really bad day when I saw it, so <laughs> I think that really influenced. You saw it at the actually. film festival, right? Yeah. After yeah, Dark. I wish yeah, I could have seen it there, and I didn't get a chance to. Wow. Number five. Wish I could have appreciated it more. Um, <laughs> the Other Side of Hope by Aki Kurismaki, another film about the refugee crisis. This one set in Finland where a a Syrian refugee turned illegal immigrant finds an unlikely benefactor in a a local restaurateur. This is Karazmaki working again in that very deadpan, wry comic style that he always does. And again, this style in this movie strips it of any unnecessary sentimentality. And I think it really allows these characters and their essential dignity and their actions to speak for themselves without Karismaki laying anything on thick. It's a very funny movie. Like most of his films. Yeah, but one that also, I think, does justice to, you know, all the issues at play in the refugee crisis now. Like, there's this subplot about this kind of gang of white nationalists who are stalking our hero. And, like, they're stupid, they're funny, they're ridiculous, but they're also very dangerous. And I think there's also an interesting attempt in this movie to interrogate, like, what is a multicultural society? Like, this restaurant um, is constantly trying to find ways to rebrand itself. So there's one long scene where it becomes a sushi restaurant and all the waiters are, like, dressed practically in yellow face. But, like, is that multiculturalism? Like, like, is it really a multicultural society if, like, the refugee system is set up to rubber stamp people being... Stereotypes. Or, or, be, or being deported back home, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, I didn't get a chance to see that. Uh, he's a filmmaker that I really need to explore more of his work. I've seen a bunch of them, and we have friends that are obsessed with him. Mm-hmm. So it's definitely something that, you know, we're going to have to dig into later. My number five is Good Time. The film that's everybody's number one. And that's probably one of the reasons that I was like, eh, it doesn't need to be near the top. (laughs) Because while it is a great movie that really cements the Safdie brothers as like filmmakers that are going to have a great future, it's a film that when you see it in the theater just kind of like bowls you over. Like the sound, the, you know, the visuals, everything. The fact that it's a one long night film, which is my favorite, or Robert Pattinson's performance, which is insane. Mm -hmm. The Safdie brothers are filmmakers that... I'm just fascinated what they're going to do next. Like, they're going to do 48 hours, a remake of that? Like, Well, I've been impressed by how every one of their movies has been simultaneously very similar and yet very different. Good Times made me go and rewatch Daddy Long Legs, which mm-hmm. I absolutely adored. Like, I that movie it. is crazy good. Mm-hmm. And I, was it talked about critically when it came out? Because heaven knows what was all over the place. I think Daddy, Daddy Long Legs was probably in the discussion along with, you know, all the other kind of mumblecore-ish mm. movies, but it de- it definitely didn't like penetrate any larger consciousness. Because when I think of mumblecore, I think of something kind of free-flowing, and Daddy Longlegs and Good Times are so precise in how they tell their story, mm. especially when it's these characters that on paper are completely unlikable. Well, we may hear more about this movie soon. Uh, my number four is 
Bahubali 2, the conclusion. That's my number four, too. Ah, I didn't even know that was let's, yours. Let's talk about it by Mr. S.S. <laughs> Rajamuli. Now, this is a film that I don't even think you were really that aware of when I said, hey, we got to go see it at the Albion Cinema. Yeah, I wasn't aware of it, but it was, it opened at number three at the box office in North America. And that didn't get talked about at all. Like, yeah. there weren't any big articles or anything like that, which is crazy to me. And I think, like, it, it still has been, I think, rather underseen by people who aren't in the Tamil or Indian communities. I, I think it's mentioned in film comment this issue on, mm. on on somebody wrote a blurb about it for that so i don't know perhaps people will see it like this was just like the most pure entertainment that i think we got this year we talked about it in an episode and i don't remember which one it is yeah it, it's like straight-faced kung fu hustle as we said at the time um just like you know tons of extravagant over-the-top cgi spectacle but grounded in how seriously it takes the material mm-hmm. and i think that makes it special yeah like because you can get involved in what's going on and it's never winking or like nudging you yeah. in the ribs and all it wants to do is entertain and he, and despite how violent it is and it is very violent it has a like fundamental innocence to it it's all about keeping you entertained and it's kind of a bummer that like a film like this will not be able to cross over north america because it is six hours long and i've heard rumors that they've been trying to edit it down like two and a (laughs) half or three hours but that's just not gonna work i mean you know we can say it again that viewing experience we had at the Albion Cinema, which is the Indian movie theater in North Etobicoke, absolutely sold out. You know, just a gigantic theater, probably a thousand seats, honestly. Mm-hmm. Ear-splitting sound. Just a great communal movie-going experience. Our friend Peter said that his brother watched the movie, and he said that he didn't think it was as good as, you know, we hyped it up to be. Mm-hmm. And that it may have been the theatrical experience that changed things for us. Maybe, because we saw part one the night before at my apartment, and we were a little mixed on it. We were chit-chatting, and we had a big problem with subtitles where we couldn't get them to work. Yeah. So a bunch of time passed. But a friend of ours, uh, Marco, watched the film, not in cinemas, and he loved it. And actually made his top ten as well. It might be on Netflix now. It Um, is on Netflix. So I would highly recommend to watch both Bahubali films. Do it with a bunch of friends so you can enjoy it together. So my number three is Get Out. My number two is The Florida Project. So I don't really have anything else to say that Will didn't. So let's Uh, move on. So my number three is Phantom Thread. Ah, my number one. So Ah. we're done here. Okay, so let's wait and talk about Phantom Thread in a little bit. Yeah. So Um, let's jump to your number two then. My number two, Good Time. I think maybe just what I would say to what you said about it. You know, you did a good job saying what a propulsive viewing experience it is. And I'm not the first person to say this, but the Safis are really good at showing what it's like to live in New York without money, especially in the outer boroughs. It's a side of New York that, frankly, you don't see in mm. movies that much. But, I mean, if you just if you just take the subway to, like, practically anywhere in Brooklyn, you can see Safdie Brothers characters. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm also not the only one to say this, but it is a good movie about white privilege. Mm-hmm. You know, like, one of the tools in uh robert pattinson's arsenal is his whiteness like he's able to pose as a security guard and beat up the black security guard and you know there have been some less charitable critics who were very offended by this scene but i don't see what there is to be offended about what do you think about the level of exploitation of the stories that they're telling on the same level that like sean baker is doing like the fact that the safties find these kind of new york people as almost like found art objects yes like that can be seen in heaven knows what where they did cast like 
you know, real street people in some of the roles. Well, I mean, in heaven knows what. Uh, I, I mean, I can't say for sure what's exploitation, what's not. But what I do know is that, like, that movie helped raise her from poverty. It did, and She yeah. was able to tell her story and she was able to... I, I'm not sure where she is now, but mm-hmm. she was able to, I guess... Uh, get clean. Um, mm-hmm. So they see they seem to me to be like genuine collaborations. Yeah, it's not necessarily just you know taking these people, putting them in movies, and then hoping to like squeeze some emotion out of the audience. And there is something truly like New York about their movie. It's like it's it's the little details. It's the Salino and Barnes ad. It's, I'm, I'm shrugging my shoulders. You don't know Salino and Barnes? No. Nope. Oh fuck! I, did, did you not, not live in New like, York? I did not. <laughs> no, no. But like, if you watch like um, Fox 29, you know the the uh, Buffalo. Mm, or yeah, Toronto. I did watch Buff- those Buffalo channels. A yeah, lot. Th- those Buffalo channels are the Salino and Barnes injury attorney is called <laughs> Selena and Barnes have since broken up I'm afraid to say. oh no yeah, okay sad uh, it's stuff like that I mm-hmm. mean I know that the Safdie brothers were also like friends with Al Goldstein towards the end of his life <laughs> like they they clearly uh, know New York characters mm-hmm. so what's your number two Will oh, well that was my number two but my number one was uh, Ex Libris the New York Public Library by Frederick Wiseman uh, Frederick Wiseman, somebody who, you know, I can, I, I guess I can run a little bit hot and cold on him. There have been times when I've seen some of his movies. He makes very long, but very unfussy documentaries about institutions, whether it's, um, you know, a high school or whether it's a hospital or, um, you know, the Crazy Horse Strip Club in Paris or uh, the National Gallery in London. In this case, it's the New York Public Library, but all facets of the New York Public Library. So we see a lot at the flagship 42nd Street branch. We see celebrities like Richard Dawkins or Patti Smith or Tanahisi Coates coming in and out. But we also see, you know, a classical music performance in the Bronx. Uh, we see uh, people being taught Braille. We see audiobooks being recorded. We see, uh, you know, kindergarten kids, uh, dance classes for seniors. And it becomes this beautiful tribute to the library as a place of learning, a place of sharing, a place of knowledge, and just a place for, you know, muddling through life. Like, you know, you're taking a dance class. And and it's also a defense of the library as a public space. Mm-hmm. So the film ends, and, I'm, and uh, I don't... Spoiler! Think, I don't think this is too much of a spoiler, but it ends with two... Scenes. There's a lengthy one at a branch in, I believe, Harlem, a very small library branch. And it's a group of, you know, probably 20 black people, concerned parents and citizens sitting around talking about the sort of textbooks that they're getting and what these textbooks are saying about American history. And they also talk about gentrification. And then it cuts to a discussion about classical music at the 42nd Street branch. And then it goes to the credits. And you see these, this juxtaposition. And these are both two wonderful things. It's wonderful that the library can accommodate both these things. But there's one of these events that's uh, catering to a very well-heeled audience. And there's one that is very vital and very necessary for the community and is a a space for people who may not be very privileged. And what's the one that's going to be under attack? And, Mm -hmm. you know, what's the one that's really vital? What's a place where people can actually gather to talk about issues necessary for their survival? Uh, I didn't get a chance to see this documentary, but if I had, I can 100% guarantee you that it would be on my top 10 list. I was just deeply moved by it. And I'm I'm tearing up just thinking about it right now. I think that libraries, you know, just to speak generally, are the most important thing (laughs) Mm -hmm. in our civilized society. 
even more than schools, only because libraries can cater to people that are not within that program. Mm -hmm. They can be a place of education. And a documentary like that is something that's so important, Mm -hmm. even though that it's incredibly long. And like, it just makes you understand just how multifaceted the library is. I mean, Mm -hmm. people think of the library as a space for books. Yeah, people often talk like, oh wait, libraries still exist? I don't go there anymore. And that's usually because they are in a level of wealth that they don't have to worry about that. Yeah, it's so blanker because they can can buy a book. But it's not so much more than books. It's like it is a community space. Mm -hmm. Number one, your number three, Phantom Thread. Uh, This is one that would not have made it on our top 10 list if we did it in December or on January 2nd or whatever, because it came out in January in Toronto, but we were both able to see it. We're going to do an episode on Paul Thomas Anderson probably pretty soon, Mm. but right here is a movie that kind of, you know, cements all the great stuff that he's able to do and what he's evolved into, kind of marrying a little bit of energy from his earlier films into a romantic framework that kind of harkens back to Hollywood cinema. And it's not only something that is hilarious and moving, but it's also scary. It's like all these different elements coming together with amazing performances from the three leads. He's really kind of shaken off those influences that were so heavy on him in the early movies i mean i love boogie nights but you can see scorsese and altman all over it and Mm -hmm. now he seems to have like he seems to have really grown into this style that is uniquely his this very intense enveloping um i'm not really even sure how to describe it yeah uh Paul Thomas Anderson is someone that has always talked about how obsessed he is with comedians. Like, he's cast comedians a lot in his films. And what's interesting is that his films have evolved into, like, straight-on comedies in the subtlest way, Mm -hmm. where the dramatics are what's funny about them. Mm -hmm. And especially that he gets out of the way of the actors that are in his pictures. Mm -hmm. Like, when you look at something like Boogie Nights and Magnolia, he's going, look at me, look at me, Mm -hmm. while these amazing performances are happening. And in something like... The Master, an Inherent Vice, or The Phantom Thread. He just kind of like off lays the camera down at a slightly low angle a lot of the time and just lets people like Daniel Day-Lewis act. I liked how Phantom Thread got into the idea of like, what is an artistic genius? Um, you know, the conditions that enable the artistic genius's worst tendencies, the army of people who prop up the artistic genius. And in terms of its depiction of a relationship you know, a relationship with this huge power imbalance. It's like, how can a relationship with a power imbalance that enormous function? Like, like what role are these people playing in each other's lives? And the way that it goes about those answers is really funny and really dark. Mm-hmm. Like, and the fact that it ends the way that it ends is hilarious while at the same time moving mm-hmm. in a very uncomfortable way. Mm-hmm. And it's something that, I really connected with. Not that that would happen to me or I would do that to someone, but it speaks a lot to how difficult relationships can be and the way that you find to deal with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we won't spoil it, but, you know, see the movie. Yeah. <laughs> Phantom Thread. Everyone dies. Yeah. <laughs> Daniel Day-Lewis grabs a machine gun and he's like, yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker. Uh, that's the only scene where Paul Thomas Anderson is not able to shake his influences. So that's the year, 2017. Uh, so you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, our Patreon episode this week, we just went through our favorite random things that we could think of. So what's the craziest action film of the year? What were our favorite film-based books? You're going to have to listen to it to find out. $5 a month, you can check it out. Patreon, Important Cinema Club. And next week, we're going to be talking about Jane Campion. 
a filmmaker that I've seen almost nothing of. I've seen The Piano. I've seen uh, Holy Smoke. Uh, she's a filmmaker that works kind of infrequently, but she has kind of had a resurgence recently because she directed two full seasons of a series, Top of the Lake mm-hmm. uh, and Top of the Lake China Girl. So that's next week. Until then, my name is Justin Clue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. the movies that didn't make our list what mother another story about uh you know what i'm not even going to say what didn't make the list because i think the whole point of a top 10 list is that it's exclusionary i saw you writing on people's uh you know lists like hey that's top 15 not top 10 yeah because it's like when when you do a top 20 list like who cares like the whole thing point is that stuff gets left off mm. so i'm not telling you what the honorable mentions <laughs> are okay that's fine uh, i'm gonna go through all of mine here we yeah, go. go no for no it. no go for okay. it. No, I'm not going to do that because me and Will are on a time crunch right now. We have to see uh, The Commuter starring Liam Neeson. A little preview for our 2018 top 10 list. When we were talking about the idea of uh, Intelligentsia watching movies, that was something that I wanted to bring up is that like a director like Jean-Colette Serra is classified as a vulgar auteur. So it's like, oh, it's okay to like this because it's dumb and we know that it's dumb, which is very disingenuous in my eyes. Why can't you just fucking enjoy it? You're a man of the people. (laughs) I am. Hey, uh, let's uh, talk about what's coming up. Who's excited for Infinity War?